strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. begin this afternoon down here at Tyre, the Phoenician city-state. Any of you seen Tyre in Lebanon, right? You've been there. Probably not so many people going there right now these days at the moment. A little more tricky to get there, more dangerous, but a great place, the Phoenician city-state of Tyre. Now, Tyre, for many years, stretched along the shores of the Mediterranean Sea for about 30 kilometres along the shore. It was a massive seaport trading city. Carthage was a Phoenician colony of Tyre. Because the Phoenicians were great traders, they set up settlements in various parts around the Mediterranean. So we'll take you to Carthage in the program tomorrow afternoon. But So they had these settlements that they had around the various parts of the Mediterranean, North Africa and so on. But here was the, the great mother port, if we could put it that way, the great city-state of Tyre. Now, Tyre was the place where traders came from all over the, that part of the world in those times and the ships of all the nations anchored in her, in her harbour. And, of course, the merchants traded and that's how Tyre made its money back in ancient times. Now, the biblical writers made some very specific predictions about Tyre. I'm going to show you the predictions from one writer, in fact, called Ezekiel. I talked about Ezekiel last evening as we were talking about that great prophecy last night. So let's notice what Ezekiel had to say about Tyre, which at this time was a great power in the uh, area of uh, Israel and Syria. Specific biblical predictions. Notice what it says. Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. And I will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. For thus, he says, says the Lord, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, mentions this man by name here, king of Babylon, king of kings from the north, because when the Babylonians attacked, they came from Iraq, they would come up the Euphrates and Tigris River, that very fertile area, up to the north Syria, and then they would come down to the areas of Palestine. So he came from the north as far as they were concerned. And he says, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre, and break down her towers, I will also scrape her dust from her and make her a bare rock. They will plunder your... Let's get it up here. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones and your timber and your rubble into the sea. And it shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. Now, you will notice here some very specific predictions are made by Ezekiel around about 600 BC. Here are the predictions. Number one, that Nebuchadnezzar would attack Tyre. He also mentioned other nations would come up against Tyre, we just read. He mentioned the fact that Tyre would be like a flat rock. And then he predicted that the city of Tyre would be thrown into the sea, thrown into the ocean. And finally, it would be a place where the fishermen spread their nets on the site of Tyre itself. Now, let's have a look 
at how these predictions were fulfilled. Remember, these are made 600 BC. We know now that Nebuchadnezzar did attack the city of Tyre. He had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, as we talked about in an earlier program or two. He destroyed that in 586 BC. Then he went down to Tyre on the coast, and he besieged Tyre for 13 years. Finally, he was able to destroy the mainland city. But the people of Tyre, because they were sea traders and so on, they simply got in their little boats and they went off to an off to an offshore island about a kilometre off the shore and he couldn't get them because he'd come from Iraq. So they were safe. Got the mainland city but didn't get the people or the loot that was there. They took onto that little offshore island. Well, about 200 years went by and Alexander the Great came to Tyre to attack it because it had sided with the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, who he was trying to take over from their empires, we saw the other day in another prophecy from Daniel. When Alexander the Great came here, he attacked the mainland city, and again, he was able to destroy it after it had been built up years later. He was able to capture the mainland city, but again, the people of Tyre got in their boats and went offshore to that little island again, like their ancestors had done 200 years before. But Alexander the Great wasn't going to give up that easy. What he did was he told his men, right, we get all the rubble from the mainland city that we've destroyed and we dump it into the ocean and we're going to build a causeway out to that little island. And you can still see the columns, as you can see here, in the water today at the city of Tyre, what's left of it. And so he built a causeway out to those people. In fact, to get as much rubble as he could, he scraped the place. He needed to get as much rubble because he was running out, and they scraped this place and left it like a flat rock, getting as much rubble and dumping it into the ocean. And you can see as time has gone on, the sands of time have washed up onto this little causeway and built like it's like a peninsula. When you see it from the air, it looks like an island at the end of a peninsula now. But it was once an island. Now, I want you to notice, when you visit Tyre today... And as I've been there, I've, I've, I've been astounded to see these fishermen with their fishing nets. Today, Tyre is a fishing village and fishing nets are everywhere. You can see them in boats everywhere. You know, it's uncanny when you think about it. The biblical prophet Ezekiel made five specific predictions and they all came to pass exactly as he'd predicted. Now, why do we say that? Because of what we're about to see this afternoon. And the significance of Tyre in the story we're going to share. What we've seen now, again, shows us this book is historically accurate. What it predicts as well. Its prophecies are dependable. It's got a proven track record of fulfilled predictions. And then, in other words, we can trust what it has to say about other things. And that's what we're going to look at this afternoon, because we're going to see something this afternoon that's going to boggle our minds, I believe. You're going to understand why this program at many times has almost been wrecked. In fact, I believe we should actually do something that we haven't done yet because of the nature of this program and where we're going to see today. We should just, like Daniel the other day, remember when he got caught between a rock and a hard place? He said, God help. So we're going to do that right now before we go any further. Let's just bow together. Loving God and Father, we have an amazing prophecy this afternoon and many times, as you know, this program has almost come unstuck because of equipment or whatever it is. We ask that you'll help us this afternoon so we can understand clearly where we are and what's going on in the world today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's move on. Now, have you noticed the great blockbuster movies and books, you know, of all types, they all have common elements. Have you noticed that? You think about it. These are the common elements in some of the great movies, most of the great movies, and the great books are... 
that we read. Number one, things were once very good. It was going smoothly, sailing along nicely. When all of a sudden, what happens? Something terrible, something awful takes place. Now we notice that a great journey must be taken or a great fight must be fought. And then just at the right moment, what happens in the story? Here comes a hero right on time and he sets things right. Have you noticed that? And then what happens next? Well, life is found again. Or as we say to the kids, everybody lived what? Happily ever after. Have you noticed those common elements in story after story, film after film? How come that's the case? Well, the reason is, is because they all borrow from an original story. The story that we're going to look at this afternoon. It's the story of a great cosmic battle or a great cosmic conflict in actual fact between good and evil that has been raging for centuries. And John in the apocalypse draws our attention to it. We're going to go back this afternoon, back before the beginning of life, back before the beginning of history, before the beginning of suffering in this world. That's where we're going this afternoon. Come with me to the island of Patmos. Anybody been to Patmos? Fascinating place to visit. In fact, we're taking a group there this year later on. The island of Patmos, in actual fact, um, is one of the most beautiful islands you can visit in the Aegean Sea today, as there are many lovely islands in that part of the world. Up on top of the hill, we have what we call the Monastery of St. John. The island of Patmos was a Roman penal colony back 2,000 years ago. The Romans sort of exiled people to this place. John, according to tradition, they tried to kill John by putting him into a great pot of boiling oil, but he wouldn't burn, wouldn't cook. And so they got him out and they sent him to this place, the island of Patmos, as a prisoner, if you like, because of his preaching of the gospel. Now, somewhere on these shores on Patmos, we cannot be exactly sure that's the case. It was here that John was given some amazing insights into the future, some visions, some dreams, some prophecies that came, according to John, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, we can visit the place where they say he received these visions today, the cave of the apocalypse, because the book of Revelation or the apocalypse in the Greek is the word. And inside, they say this cave, this is where John was given these amazing insights into the future. As I said, we can't be sure whether this is the place or not. But it was somewhere on the island of Patmos that John was given this incredible vision that we're going to see today. In the book of Revelation, in the 12th chapter, we see something incredible. In the 12th and the 13th and the 14th chapters, the heart of Revelation, we encounter three beasts. And we're going to understand these as we move on through our series, because that's why they're here to, uh, for us to understand. They take us right on into the time we're living today. There's a dragon that comes up in the Revelation. Then comes a beast from the sea. And finally, a beast arises up out of the land. These three powers in the book of Revelation are very active in the end times. Now, what about the dragon today? That's the one we want to understand today. What's this red dragon that John sees in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation? Notice what he says. So that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels, he says, were cast out with him. 
Now, I can almost hear somebody here this afternoon saying, now, give me a break. Are you serious, Gary, that an intelligent person like you would believe in a devil? Are you sure you're really going to go there? Let me say something this afternoon. I surely do for some very good reasons. Number one, we have some good evidence, first of all, from Jesus the Christ. He believed in this being. And we saw last evening, he was sure a real person. We traced an incredible prophecy from Daniel. But not only that, we have some interesting evidence that comes from archaeology as well, that this idea of a dragon devil. So let's notice the evidence this evening. Remember in our first program, we came here to the Ishtar Gates in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. You will notice there are composite creatures depicted on these Ishtar Gates. One of them is a dragon. You notice it down the bottom here. Let's get a closer up look of this dragon. Now, the dragon for the Babylonians was a symbol of evil for these people in ancient times. The idea of a dragon, a symbol of evil. Not only that, we can go to Persepolis here, the great city of the Medo-Persians, their capital. And if you come here to Persepolis, you will see a, a relief of a Hiraman, or Darius, I should say, fighting a Hiraman the dragon here. And who's a Hiraman the dragon for the Medo-Persians? He also was a symbol of evil. So the idea of a dragon in the ancient world, in ancient biblical times, was certainly the idea of something to do with evil. Now, who is this? By the way, the, I, the, I, the devil himself would like us to believe that he doesn't exist. There was a Chinese village on one occasion who every harvest time, the bandits would come down and take their crop. And the people got sick of this bandit, so they decided to form a vigilante group in their village. And uh, so they formed this vigilante group, and every time the, the bandit came, they were ready for him and drove him off. And so eventually he'd stop coming. Well, one day, an old man from the village was walking through the forest, and lo and behold, out of the bushes jumps the, the, the bandit the leader of the bandits, and he said, listen, old man, do you want some money? I said, I sure do. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you some money if you go back to the village and you tell them that the bandit's dead. He's no longer here. He's kaput. So the old man wanted the money. He went back to the village and he said, listen, folks, we don't need to worry anymore. The bandit's dead. So they disbanded their vigilante group, and guess who showed up next harvest? Well, of course, the bandit did with his, with his other friends. And that's about it with this being here. Let me tell you, as we're going to see this evening, he would love us to think that he doesn't exist because then he's got one up on us. And we'll see how clear that is this evening, this afternoon. Who is this dragon devil that uh, we encounter here? Where did he come from? Well, let's go back to John in the Revelation, in the Apocalypse. John says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, of all places for war to break out, we would have to say that heaven would be the last place we'd expect such a war to break out. But what I like about this book, as we've seen, is it tells it for as it's real. It doesn't cook ideas up, because who'd want to think a war broke out there? But God tells us through his prophets exactly what happened, and it broke out in this place, of all places. Now, you, of course, have seen, no doubt, the Films of George Lucas, they're famous today, aren't they? Star Wars, and what else have we got? The Return of the Jedi, and The Empire Strikes Back, and on and on it goes, doesn't it? Well, these, of course, are fictitious Star Wars. I want to bring you this afternoon to the real Star Wars, a Star Wars among the stars, as we're going to see, the original one where everything else draws from, from this story. 
Now, there are two pictures or portraits of this being in these ancient biblical manuscripts. Number one comes from Ezekiel, and that's why I began there this afternoon, because we need to understand what Ezekiel wrote was spot on. He wrote correctly about the fall of Tyre. He predicted the fall of Tyre, and we see today, even now, the fishermen spread their nets there. Now, he also spoke about this being, but he used this being, or this being was working through a front. The devil doesn't come with a pitchfork and two horns and a pointy tail like sometimes he's portrayed. He always uses powers on earth and so on, people as well. So in this case, the front for the devil is the king of Tyre, and he talks. We can see who's behind the king of Tyre, who he's re- who's working through this power at this time. So let's go to Ezekiel's portrait from his own book. He talks about this being. You were the seal of perfection, he says, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God and walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You can see this is more than the king of Tyre. Notice the three things about this devil or dragon. Who is this dragon who warred against God? Number one, he was once in the Garden of Eden at a point in time. Number two, says Ezekiel, this being was created by God. He's a created being. And thirdly, he was once the anointed cherub. A cherub is a type of an angel in the Bible. So he was a the anointed cherub. He was the covering cherub, it said. In other words, he was the guardian angel. Now, notice what Ezekiel says. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till sin was found in you. This being was made perfect, but then sin was found in him. Well, what's sin? Are we talking about here? This being who was perfect, what was this sin that was found in him? We are left with no question when Ezekiel says these words. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. In other words, what? Pride. Pride was the problem of this being. Pride came into focus right here. His heart was lifted up because of his beauty. Pride or self-centeredness was the origin of this being's downfall. Now the second picture or second portrait is from Isaiah the prophet. Now you remember, as we said the other evening, Isaiah, two books, almost complete scrolls of the book of Isaiah were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Isaiah had incredible things to say that we know are absolutely accurate today. He's description of what happened with the Assyrians and so on, the fall of the the capture of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. We can see it in the British Museum today, piece after piece of what the Bible said we have. He was a great writer, Isaiah, and this is what he had to say about this being. Notice as he continues the theme that Ezekiel, or Ezekiel came a hundred years after Isaiah, but notice what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, he said. Now, you'll notice the name of this being at one point in time was Lucifer. You've heard of Lucifer, haven't you? I remember when I was a kid, my brother and I, we had to light the bath heater. Now, you don't even know what a bath heater is, many of you young people, but once upon a time, you didn't have hot water. You had to light a fire, heat the water up, and then it would come through the house and so on. So my brother and I had to light the fire. We used to cheat. We used to go down to the shop and buy these little squares soaked with kerosene, and they were called what? Some of you might have had these yourself. Little Lucifers. 
Because the idea, this is the guy that stacks the fire, you know. So Lucifer, but the, the name means day star. It's not a bad name. This is when he was a perfect being, day star. Now, notice what Isaiah has to say about this being. You have said in your heart, in your mind, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This guy's got a problem, hasn't he? What's his problem? He's got an eye disease, hasn't he? I, 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 I. And let me tell you, my friends, this is really where all problems begin. Somebody puts themselves above where they should be. And this is how it happened with this being, I, I, I. Do you notice something interesting? The middle letter of pride is I. The middle letter of Lucifer is I. The middle letter of a very small word is I, sin. And this is at the heart of all problems, I, I, I. Somebody wants to be where they shouldn't be. The desire to take God's place to be in control where God should be in control. This is where this problem began way back there in this great cosmic battle we're talking about. The love of power instead of the power of love. That's what this being wanted, Lucifer. Now, Lucifer began a campaign to discredit the character of God. That's what happens, isn't it? If people want to climb to the top today, oftentimes the way they climb to the top is they criticize or gossip about someone to pull them down so they can get on top. Well, this is not new. This idea has been around for centuries, and it came from this being here who began the first one. He began to whisper things that were not true about the God of the universe in order to pull himself up above, he hoped. Now, there are two activities that Satan lives for that this book mentions, and it's Jesus the Christ who mentioned these. He said he lives for two things. Number one, he lives for deception. Jesus called him a liar. And the second thing he lives for is destruction. He deceives to destroy. That's the way Jesus the Christ put it. He's a liar and a murderer. He is out to deceive us, to destroy us. Many people don't realize this, but this is the facts of life. This is as real as the air we breathe today, that this being is seeking to deceive in order to destroy, said Jesus. So war broke out in heaven after this discrediting of God's character and so on, as this being, a war breaks out in heaven. Lucifer became Satan. God did not create a devil, not at all. He created a perfect being who became a devil. Does a woman give birth to a drunkard? No, she doesn't. She gives birth to a beautiful baby who by his or her choices becomes a drunkard. And here it's the same here. God did not make a devil. He made a perfect being who by his choices became what we call Satan. And one third of the angels joined sides with Satan in his rebellion against God. And the Bible says they were cast out of heaven. Notice what John says in the book of Revelation. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red fiery dragon having seven heads and 
ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. John goes on to say his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Who are these stars? We're in no question as to who the stars are as we notice what John says. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels, he said, he said his angels were cast out with him. The stars in John's writings represent angels. You will notice that if some of you have looked at the Revelation a little bit in the first three chapters. It says there's an angel uh, to each church. They're represented by the stars that are in the hands of Jesus. Each star represents an angel. Angels are represented by stars. And this being with his tail like a great crocodile swooped a third of the angels. A star wars among the stars, among the angels, in other words. This exalted angel became a fallen angel, or what we would call a spirit being. An evil spirit is the way the Bible uses the term in the scriptures. Now, here's a question that I think that many of us would like an answer for. Why didn't God destroy Satan immediately? We wouldn't have many of the problems we have today. We wouldn't have any of the problems. Why didn't he just zap this guy? Zoop, sayonara, he's gone. Well, let me tell you, there's a good reason. God is a little more clever than we are. In fact, a lot more clever than we are. Let's illustrate it this way. Here is President Obama. Now, just imagine that President Obama is accused by his advisors in the White House of embezzling U.S. funds and putting it in his own bank account. Now, Obama knows he's not guilty. He didn't do this thing, but he's accused of it. Would President Obama be doing the right thing if he brought in the special police and said, now listen here, I've got a job for you to do. Those guys who accused me of embezzling funds, I just want you to dismiss them. Just get rid of them. Would this indicate that he's innocent or guilty? No, people would say, the guy's dead guilty. I mean, look what he just did to those who accused him, you see. No, you have to let some things happen so that the true colours of this thing are clearly seen. You see... God does not want beings to worship him and serve him out of fear, but out of love. You imagine, if after this, somebody did something wrong, people would say, watch out, don't cross God or you're dead meat. He'll just zap you. Now, God doesn't want service out of fear. He wants us to respond to him in a loving way, like any relationship, on a love basis, not a fear basis. And so God allowed things to this being, I should say, to show his true hand. God wants us to relate out of love and not out of fear. Jesus told a story which illustrates this principle. He said, one day there was a farmer who sowed some wheat in his paddock. And a couple of nights later, the servants of the farmer came running into him and said, Sir, sir, there's weeds growing up among the wheat. And they said, somebody must have come in overnight and planted weeds among our wheat that we planted. Do you want us to go out and pull up the weeds? He said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. That's, that's too risky because if you pull up the, the weeds, you'll pull up the wheat, the young wheat with it. Now, let them both grow to the harvest, and then when the harvest time comes, we'll be able to clearly see what's wheat, what's weeds, and we'll pull out the weeds, and we'll get rid of those, and then the wheat will be there. So don't do that. And Jesus used this 
Same, this same principle that Jesus talked about, this is the way God handled this problem and had to handle this problem so that people could see, as time went on, the true colours of this being, where his rebellion would end, where it was going to head down the track. So the devil, Satan, is cast out of heaven after this battle, this war in heaven, down to this earth, which is the most recent creation of God. The Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus Christ created all things. Everything in the universe, it says, was created by Jesus the Christ. And so this devil is thrown down to this world now, the most recent creation of his universe. Now, let me talk about a snake now. Into this garden one day, the home of our first parents, according to the Bible, Adam and Eve, there comes a snake. The snake was there, but he became a medium or a channel for this dragon devil. Now, I want you to notice what the Bible says. This is why John calls him a serpent or a snake, because of where we've seen him before. The great dragon, that serpent or snake of old, called the devil and Satan. You see, back in the Garden of Eden, we sometimes read these stories and we think, what a fairy tale. No, hang on, just before we go down that track, let's think about what's going on. We need to see clearly here. There's a snake. The Bible says the devil worked through the snake to trick our first parents, as we'll see. Now, the snake in the ancient world was a symbol of some interesting things. It was a symbol, first of all, of superior deceptive wisdom in different places. It was also a symbol of evil and disobedience in the ancient world. For example, we can come here to Egypt and we notice a couple of the snake gods. One of them was called Tithrambo. He was the god of revenge and of punishment in Egypt. Then there was another god called Typhon. He was the author of all moral and physical evil, the snake god Typhon. If we go to the Egyptian hieroglyph writings, you will notice just up here, here's the snake up here. He's a, a symbol. He represents subtlety. He represents cunning, lust, and sensual pleasure. Not the sort of good things. This is the idea of the snake in ancient Egypt in some respects. Now, the snake in the biblical story, he becomes a medium or a channel for Satan to work through this being, this snake, I should say. He becomes a channel for this being. Now, before we go any further, let's just talk about love. If you have true love, you must give it the right not only to say yes to you, but the right to say no to you. If you don't have the opportunity to say yes or no, you don't really have love. You are forcing yourself on somebody. You are like a someone who manipulates them. No, humans were made with freedom of choice. They could say yes to God or they could say no to God, just like this being called Lucifer. He could have said yes, but he chose to say no to God and go his own way. True love gives you the opportunity to say no, and that's the way God operates. He gives us the freedom of choice. We are not puppets. We're not robots. He didn't make us that way. He wanted us to have the freedom of choice. And so this is how he offered man the opportunity to use his choice way back at the beginning of history. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, you will notice what's going on here. 
This tree that's placed in the garden becomes sort of like a polling booth. God made many trees and Adam and Eve could eat of all the trees except one, just one, not this one. It was a polling booth. You see, they could say yes to God or no to God. It was their opportunity to exercise their freedom of choice. Vote for me, God was saying, by not eating of this tree and you'll have life. You'll continue to live. But Adam and Eve, you need to know something. If you vote for Satan, you'll eat of that tree. But let me tell you, the consequences will be death. Why? Because God wanted to get even? No. But because if you withdraw from God, it's like withdrawing from the life support system. In God, the Bible says, is life. That's where it came from. So to not stay with God is to unplug from the life support system. So there were consequences to that, and he warned our parents, but if you go that way, you can do it if you want, but you need to know there are consequences to that choice, and it is death. So vote for me and have life. Now, so one day, Eve, our mother, grand great-grandmother, so to speak, she turns up to the polling booth, the tree in the garden, and she's met there by this snake who's a front for the dragon, who wants to deceive them. Notice what happens. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, he said, The day you eat thereof, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we've heard this before, haven't we? This idea of I will make myself like the Most High. This came from Lucifer way back where he said, I will do this and I will do that. And finally he ended, I will be like the Most High himself. Now he says to Eve, you be like God. You be like God. You will know good from evil if you take this fruit. He's offering her this idea. Now, I want you to notice there is a two-pronged attack against the character of God right here. God had said to Adam and Eve, don't touch that fruit because if you eat of it, you will die. Now, this being comes along using a snake, talking through a snake and says, Eve, you won't die. He's got a two-pronged attack on the character of God. And here it is. Number one, God doesn't really love you or care about you, Eve, because if he really did, he would not hold anything back from you. He really doesn't want you to take this fruit because if you do it, you'll be like him. You see what's going on here? He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care about you. He cares about himself, not you. So this is an attack on the character of God. But secondly, it's a second attack on the second part of God's character, I should say, and that is God isn't a just God. It doesn't matter if you eat that fruit. You won't die. God's not going to do anything about it. Don't worry about it. His laws are not that critical. doesn't matter if you disobey. You won't die. God is not a just God. By the way, these are the two things that make up love when you think about it. The two things that make up God's character, his love and his justice. You do way without one, and what sort of a God do you end up with? It's terrible to think about. But these are the two things about his character, and this is the double attack that this being made on his character. He doesn't love us, and he's not a just God. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, does it make one wise? How long, often do you see a talking snake? You can imagine this snake wrapped around a branch of the tree, munching on a piece of fruit, and he's talking. You can imagine what Eve thought, wow, this is powerful fruit. I mean, look what it's done to this being. He can now talk. So she saw it was one to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband with her and he ate, the Bible says. Now, I want you to notice what happens next in the story. This is the story of how problems came into our world, how sin started, a small word but big consequences. Immediately, Adam and Eve took the fruit because she offered some to her husband. He just bowled in and took the thing. But the first thing that happened was this. They hid from God, the Bible tells us next. They hid in the bushes. They didn't want to be near God. And isn't that the case of today? Many people are running from God. God's the last one they want to be an encounter with in life. That's what happens in our world today. Multitudes, thousands, millions of people want nothing to do with God because it came from way back here. Yet at one stage, man had been in great friendship with God. They hid from God in the bushes, it goes on to tell us. And the second thing that happened, when God finally talked to them, they played the blame game. Adam blamed his wife and their marriage relationship was strained. And isn't that what happens in world today? When something goes wrong, we start to blame other people for our mistakes. And that's exactly what happened. Relationships are strained. Relationships, firstly, this way with their God, they hid from him. And then on the human level, relationships were strained in a terrible way. And so entered into our world from this point, these terrible things, disharmony. Also came disease. Things began to die. Depression. And, of course, the terrible thing of divorce and destruction and death. These things came into our world at this time. What a tragedy, tragic picture of our world today. These things have come from this being called the devil or Satan. This is their origins. They're the acts of Satan. He's the one who brought all this stuff into this world. If you go and read the story of Job, maybe this afternoon when you go home, just read the first two chapters and you'll see Job has a bunch of problems. His kids are killed and he loses his livestock. A whole heap of things happen to Job and it's very clear the one thing the Bible says they came from was this being called the Satan or the dragon. Now I want you to think about what happens in our world today. We blame all these things onto God. For example, cyclones and earthquakes, they're called in the insurance policies acts of God, right? As a world, we believe this idea that these things are from God almost. That's the way we write it into our policy. We blame God for these things. When there's a, a, a terrible uh, cyclone or earthquake or there's children dying of hunger, we say, why God? Why did you do this, God? Why did you allow this, God? As if it's all God's fault. And yet it's all the fault of this being. But the world, in general, often blames God for these things. Now, here's the question. How can a loving God reach a world that believes the lies of this being called Satan? How can God reach a world that falls for all these lies of this being? Well, let's go back to the story. When Adam and Eve have done this thing, and now the world is going downhill, God comes along, the Bible says, in the cool of the day, at the best part of the day, and he calls for Adam and Eve. He calls out Adam where are you? I long for you. 
You know, God is a being who longs for a relationship with you and I, his children, earthly children. He longs for that. He cares about us. He made us. It's like any parent. Any parent who has their children, they like to be with their kids. The same with the God of heaven. Adam, where are you? He called out. And when they caught up with these and they came out of the bushes from where they were hiding, he had a little chat with them, talking about what was going to happen and so on. But he made a promise to these two parents of ours. Notice it's right in the beginning of the Bible. Must have brought some hope to them at that time. I will put enmity, antagonism between you, that means the snake, but behind the snake, the devil he's talking to, and the woman. And between your seed, your offspring, and her offspring, her seed, and it's a capital seed with a singular. He, the seed of the woman, a special child in other words, shall bruise your head. Now, you and I know living in a country where we've got the most poisonous snakes in the world, you take out a snake's head, he's dead meat, right? So this being is going to come along, this offspring of the woman, this offspring of humanity is going to come one day and crush the head of the snake, meaning the devil will be shattered, the one behind the snake. But you shall bruise his heel. As he crushes the snake's head, he himself will be wounded in this great fight. Now we go to the book of Revelation, and John gives us an an amazing picture now. Notice what John says, and we can put it all together here as we move on. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then the Bible says, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So here's the pregnant woman, and she's wanting to give birth to a child. Notice what happens. The dragon stood before the woman, the devil, who was ready to give birth. Why? To devour, he says, her child as soon as it was born. So you can almost picture this great picture of a dragon standing in front of this pregnant woman so that when she gives birth, man, he's going to take that child out. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne, says John in the Apocalypse. What John is portraying for us here in these few cryptic verses is really the story of Christmas that comes to us every year. A child came from the woman, and that child was going to be the deliverer of the human race. That's the picture John has in his Apocalypse, right in the center point. In fact, Isaiah predicted this 700 years before that. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah said, For unto us, that means unto human beings, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, the rulership, will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Notice what else he calls him. What? The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah could see way down in time that this child, to be born of humanity, would actually be God in human flesh. He's given to the human race. God with us, we say. John put it this way when he came along, one of the followers of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God has given him to the human race. What an amazing gift when you think about it. And so finally, after 2,000 years of history, from the 2,000 years from the time of Adam and Eve, our first parents, when we got into this mess, 2,000 years later, he finally came. He was baptized here in the Jordan River. And then in his life, he fed the hungry. He came and he healed the sick, people who were cripples and so on. Jesus touched lepers. You think about it. Lepers in the ancient times were regarded as untouchable people. People thought if you get near a leper, you'll get leprosy. 
But Jesus, as you read the story, he puts his arms around these lepers and touches them. He says, I care about you. I love you, even though no one else does. This Jesus befriended outcasts, people that nobody else cared about. Jesus cared about them. This Jesus comforted the grieving people. A mother was coming out of a village one day in the city of Nain. She's leaving. She's got her only support. He's now in a coffin, so to speak. That's all she's got to support her. Her husband's dead. Now her boy's dead. And as she's leaving the city gate, Jesus is coming in the city gate and he stops the funeral procession and he touches the coffin. And he's, first of all, he says, "What? He, don't weep. And then he raises this boy to life. I tell you what, that must have been a tremendous day. The funeral stopped right there on the way out of that city. Comforted the grieving. Jesus cast out demons. We have stories in this, in the amazing stories of how demons possessed people in those times. They lived in the cemetery. They wore no clothes. They were violent, fearful. But Jesus came by and he changed their life. You know, we don't have any appreciation for this much in our country. We don't see it. But you go with me to the Pacific Islands where I've lived and I've worked among the people in the Pacific Islands and you see this stuff often, this sort of thing. We don't really realize it back here, but it's very real. Jesus cast out the demons. He was had the power to do that. Jesus the Christ not only cast out demons, but he raised the dead to life. What an amazing thing that must have been to see somebody who'd been dead for four days now walking again. You see, he came to seek that which was lost and to fix what was broken in this planet. Now, how do we explain all this? How do we explain a man who lives like this on this planet 2,000 years ago? There's only one way to explain this, and that is in the word Emmanuel, which means God is with us, was with us on earth at this point in time. You know, the Bible puts it this way. Paul is a friend of Jesus the Christ. Paul at first killed Christians. He couldn't stand Christ, and he couldn't stand his followers, and he killed them. Then one day on the road to Damascus, Paul was dramatically changed in an instant. And he became a great friend of Jesus and he wrote these words. He said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. My apologies, this is John, not Paul. We'll come to Paul later on. All things were made through him. That's through Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, we may find this hard to believe, my friend, but that's why we began last weekend saying this book can be trusted. We've seen that it's historically accurate. Its prophecies are reliable. Therefore, we can trust statements like this, you see. And it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a human being, in other words. The creator became a creature on this planet. That's an amazing thought. The God who created everything became a human being. I was in Tonga running these same programs a few years ago. And at that time, the king of Tonga had just been crowned king. King George, it was. He's now passed away. But everybody in that country was amazed. You've got to appreciate this is a, this is the Tongan royal kingdom where you have kings and you have nobles and you have us commoners, right? That's the way it is uh, in, in, in society there. And when the king was crowned king there in Tonga, the first thing he did was go into a home of a commoner and visit this little girl here who was dying of leukemia. And all the people of Tonga were amazed that their great king would do such a thing as to go into the house of a commoner. Now, what King George did was, was, was truly amazing, was wonderfully gracious. But let me tell you, it pales into insignificance compared to what's happened when the God of this world became one of us. He didn't just come to visit us commoners, he became a commoner. What an amazing God this is that is running this universe. The God himself became a commoner.
Now, these are the acts of Satan, as we've seen. Disease and destruction and divorce and death and depression and discouragement. They're his acts. But these are the acts of God that the Bible depicts. This is what God is like, not like the devil portrays him. In fact, Isaiah predicted these about Jesus the Christ. He said he is despised. And rejected of men. And isn't that true, my friend, today? Many people have want nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to, Je- to do with Jesus. He's just a swear word for many people. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet, he says, we esteemed him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's how he was treated when he was here on this planet. Nobody really wanted to have that much to do with him. And when Jesus the Christ came 2,000 years ago, this is what he came for. He came to, to, so that love could break Satan's possessive grip on our planet. He came so that he could end human suffering. He doesn't want human suffering. It's caused by the devil, and he wants to end it. And this is one of the reasons he came... Uh, in 2,000 years ago. God came to give us a forever hope as human beings. Now you say, how did he do this? Well, let me show you how he did this. It goes back to the great Star Wars battle. Now I know in the George Lucas films, when the Empire strikes back, it's the baddies who strike at the goodies, right? You've seen the films. But let me tell you, in the real Star Wars, it's God's Empire that strikes back at Satan. And where did it happen? It happened here at all places of what we call Calvary or Golgotha. This is where the Star Wars battle was actually really won. I want you to notice what it says in the book of Hebrews. Paul is writing, he says these words, Inasmuch then as the children, that's you and I, human beings, we are partakers of flesh and blood. We have blood in our veins. He himself, that's talking about Jesus the Christ, God himself, likewise shared in the same. That through death, why did Jesus Christ come? One of the main reasons was so that he could die. He took flesh and blood. Through death, he might destroy. Notice what he might destroy. He might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Let me tell you, my friends, we fear death as a, as a race. Our pulse is the funeral march to the tomb. Oh, we may not fear death right now, but come to the edge of death, and I want to tell you, most of us will fear it then. That's the case. I've seen it. We fear death. But here is a power that defeats the one who brings fear to us, and this is Jesus Christ. Through death, we're all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, the devil was defeated at the cross. How was he defeated at the cross? Let me show you. Here's how. You remember he made a two-pronged attack at God and his character in that garden home of our first parents. What were the two-pronged attack? Number one, God doesn't love us. Number two, he's not a just God. It doesn't matter about his laws. It don't matter. God's not going to do anything about it. At the cross of Calvary, both of those charges are refuted by what took place. You see, first of all, at the cross, we see the justice of God. How do we see the justice of God? Well, you will notice what it says. In Romans, Paul writes, Christ Jesus, whom God set forth by his blood, meaning his death, to demonstrate, to show people at the present time his righteousness, which is a word for justice, so that he might be just. At the cross, God's justice was seen. Remember what 
God said to the, our first parents in the Garden of Eden when he put him in their home, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, you shall eat. You shall not eat, I should say. For in the day that you eat, you will what? You will die. Disobedience to God has a consequence. It's called death. In fact, Paul put it in a very succinctly few words. He said the wages or the results or the consequences of sin, doing wrong, is death. That's a nice, neat summary of what he said to Adam and Eve. Sin brings death. Now, the Bible tells us concerning Jesus Christ, Paul is writing again. He says, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. In other words, he took our sins upon him. That's why the Bible says again and again, Christ died for our sins. I don't care who you are. You might be the worst person on the planet, but there's no question, according to the Bible, that he took everybody's sins on himself. So that's why he died, because the wages of sin is death, because it was our sin that he took. That's why he died. But not only that, the love of God was seen at the cross. It was demonstrated that the devil was wrong on the idea of God's love. The Bible says God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very clearly, he makes that point here. I'm so glad about that. You and I should have died in that sense of eternal death, but Jesus died. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave, meaning he sacrificed his only begotten Son, You see, the love of God is enormously high. He came down out of heaven, became a human being to die in the place of every human being. God's love is not only high, it's incredibly deep. The Bible says these words, we read them a moment ago, he died for the world. That means sinful, rebellious people. Notice what John, what Paul said, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were what? While we were still sinners, while we were at our worst He died for us. That's an amazing thing when you think about it. Even when we were running from him, he still loved us enough to die for each one. And God's love is incredibly wide, according to the Bible. John puts it this way in that most famous verse of the Bible, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I want you to think about it. In our universe today, the more scientists look with their telescopes, the more stars they see, the more galaxies they see. There's billions of them. Only one planet went astray, according to the Bible, this world. One planet in all those, God could have said, oh, forget about one planet. Who cares? I've got zillions of them. But he didn't. There are seven billion people today on this planet And there's been countless billions down through time. But what John is telling us here, that even if one person had messed up, Jesus the Christ would still have come down from heaven to die for one miserable person. That's incredible love. The devil was wrong, you see. He was absolutely wrong about God not being a loving God and a just God. I remember this story that I read recently of a guy who ran operating one of these drawbridges where a trains used to come across the drawbridge. And, and on one occasion, he, he used to have to push an electronic button and the drawbridge would go down. He, he knew the train was coming, so he pushed the button and the drawbridge came down, but it didn't lock into place. And there was a way to get around that. He would have to go outside his little booth where he operated from, and there was a lever, a manually you could hold the lever down, but you'd have to stand on the lever, stay on the lever and keep holding it so that it wouldn't, fault and the train derail and go into the into the water so so he he did this 
he, he went to the lever, pushed the lever down and held onto it. But just at that point, he looked down on the tracks and there was his little boy playing on the tracks and calling out, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. So the father left the lever, started going down the steps to get his little boy, but then he realised he's not going to have time to get back because the train was coming pretty quickly. So he, he didn't know what to do. What should he do? Get his boy? But if he got his boy, he wouldn't be out. These people would die. So in a split second, he made the, the, the decision that that he didn't want to make. He raced back, pushed down the lever, held it down as that train came rushing by, and, of course, it killed his little boy on the tracks. All the people on the train, as they went by, they were happy faces, smiling. They didn't have a clue what had just taken place. As this father gave the life of his son for the passengers on that train who could have all been killed. I think it illustrates in just a small way the tremendous heart of God's, his love for each of us. God is just and God is love. And that's why, my friends, today, that hope is sure because that's the sort of God who's running this universe. Hope is tremendously sure today. I was traveling in the United States of America a number of times, and on one occasion I wanted to go to the battle of field of Gettysburg because there in 1863 an horrific battle took place in the Civil War fought for two reasons, to preserve the Union of the United States and secondly, to free the slaves. That was Abraham Lincoln's great objective, to preserve the Union and to free the slaves. And for three bloody days... This fight went on. At the end of three days, there were some 55,000 casualties on that battlefield, which you can walk over today and and hear those different stories. But when that fight was over, on the final day, as the sun began to sink in the west and darkness came on, all you could see and hear, you could see mounds of wrecked human bodies, dismembered bodies, no legs, no arms, severed limbs, moaning, groaning men all over the battlefield. It was a horrific sight. But if we could have been there on that battlefield that last night as the battle was over, we would have seen a farmer from two or three hills beyond running around with a lantern. He knew that his boy had been in that fight during those three days, and now that the battle was over, he went looking for him. And he went from one pile of moaning, groaning men crying out, John Hartman, your father calls you. John Hartman, your father calls you. And this went on for some time till finally he found his son on the battlefield. The son called out, Father, I'm over here. And he came running over, saw his boy wounded on the field, lifted him up and took him back to his home to do some recuperation for him. You know, when I think about that, I think about our world today. It's in a battle and many people don't even realize this battle is going on. And there's a home that God is wanting us all to be part of. We've talked about it the last couple of programs. That rock that smites the image on the feet, that represents the kingdom of God when he'll set up a kingdom where there's no more, pe- no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more war, where it's going to be forever peace and forever hope. That home God is wanting us to be part of. And this story that we've seen tonight, today, tells us that just like God has been crying out to, cried out to Adam 2,000 years, well, 6,000 years ago now, Adam, where are you? He's been crying out down through the ages of time for all the Adams and the Eves. He wants us to be part of his forever kingdom. I trust today that as we've gone through this amazing prophecy, because this is the center point of revelation, 
You will not understand the book of Revelation, but that you have that in view. Because what John is going to talk about now is the final crisis, and we're going to go through what he has to say. We're going to track it down through time, and we're going to track it down right onto our own day. We're going to see from current events, from history, where, where we are today. But this is what's at the center of this whole thing. There's a cosmic battle between good and evil, and it's so that you and I can have eternity. That's what God's in this thing for. I think we should thank God for portraying the real picture to each one of us so that we understand what is really going on behind the scenes in the world today. In our second session, we're going to be talking about the journey to eternity. We're going to take an idea of how the ancient Egyptians saw life after death. We'll be going to the book of Revelation again to an amazing prophecy. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.